Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector. I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, welcome. This podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it works. In each episode, a different guest comes on and asks me three questions. We have about a 10-minute conversation about each of them, and that's it. No fluff, lots of actionable tips and strategies that both the person asking the question and you can hopefully put to use. So let's get right into it. Today, my guest is Alicia Johnson. Alicia helps communities and community-centered organizations prepare respond, and recover from disaster. You can learn more about her work at twolinchpinroad.com and through her newsletter, Ready for Anything. As an emergency manager with two decades of on-the-ground experience, she brings connection and peace of mind to those she works with. So with that in mind, hey, Alicia, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh, it's good to be here. I'm happy to say you are my first disaster expert. This is different. Too. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But it's always good. It's always good to have a relationship with a disaster expert because you never know when you're when you're going to need one. Yeah, so, need one. yeah, especially these days. So, for everyone that's listening, don't worry. We're not just going to talk about disaster preparedness. Alicia's got a bunch of questions about her business. We're going to talk a little bit about podcasting, and we're going to talk about proposals and how to sell services and consulting services to people. So. I think this is going to be very relevant, even if you have no interest in disasters. Let's jump into it. What is the first thing you want to know? Yeah. So my first question, as we've already established, I'm an emergency management consultant and I sell primarily to B2B and B2G type of areas in a very specific niche. Mm -hmm. um, how do I, or even should I start and market a niche sector podcast? So tell me a little bit about sort of the work you do. So who hires you? What do you do for them? How does that work? Just so we have some context before we get yeah. into the podcast. That's a great question. So I work with all layers of government, all the way from local, county to the federal government, focusing specifically on disaster preparedness, mitigation, public information, you know, helping communities and their organizations prepare and recover, respond from disaster itself. That can look anything like help us build a plan to help us figure out how to talk about disasters without scaring people to how do we integrate more effectively our, our threats and our hazards and our resources? And what does that look like if we were to get impact, if we were to be impacted by something <laughs> tragic? So there's a lot of niche elements inside that little tiny space. Mm -hmm. And I think the overarching question for me is, is it worth it to delve into the podcasting forum? I love audio. I, mm -hmm. I feel comfortable in this area, but is that worth exploring or should I put my time and effort into something else? And most people are hiring you before they've had a disaster or after or both? It's a mix of both. So a lot of times what happens is they've experienced something and then they receive federal grant money or grant money from some other organization. And now they're trying to pick up the pieces and plan for the next thing. They have okay. they, they are aware that it can happen to them and now they want to prepare for the next time. Okay. So let's start here. So if you're, if you're thinking of starting a podcast, why a podcast? What are you hoping to get out of it? You mentioned that you're comfortable with audio. So, okay, maybe that's why you're saying podcast. And I know you have a newsletter, but obviously there's a million options. There's YouTube, there's all sorts of stuff. But what would be the result you're hoping to get from the podcast? Aside from, I want to launch it and I want people to listen to it. What do you want it to lead to? 
what would success yeah, look like? That's a, for me, I think I really want to have very open conversations about what is happening inside the field right now and how yeah. we move the ball forward. That we can't, in the 21st century, we can't approach disaster management the way we've approached it in the 20th century and, and previous. We're not yeah. in the days of civil defense. We're in a completely different era now. We really need to approach that and have that conversation fully in a public mm -hmm. forum. And I think podcasting allows that to happen in a very transparent and effective way. I think it could serve as a way of not necessarily educating the public about what disasters are mm -hmm. and how to prepare, because that, that's not the intention here, mm -hmm. but really to delve a little bit more deeply into what does it look like as a local government to prepare? What are the best practices? How are we moving that needle? Are we even concentrating on the right areas? Are there other things we should talk about? So in my mind, really delving in a little bit deeper than what you can do with just words and having an mm -hmm. opportunity to talk to practitioners across the United States and, and frankly, worldwide about how disasters are affecting them and how they are combating those every single day. Okay. So the first thing I would say in trying to decide like whether or not you should start a podcast, and this is not only true for you, but I think true for anyone in, in any niche, is there's overlap here, but getting really clear on what you want to get out of it. So there's a version of, and again, it may be multiple things, but even ranking them in priority order. So there's a version of it where you're like, I'm doing a podcast because I ultimately want to get clients out of it. That can happen in a variety of different ways, but that could be a goal, right? It could be a business-focused goal. There could be another goal where it's, this is really an educational tool for me. It's an excuse for me to learn and learn from these other people and do this thing. And it's not necessarily, yeah, it'd be great that maybe it leads to clients, but that's not my primary goal. I'm actually doing it because I want to learn from others in this space. Then there's another one that might be a relationship-driven. This gives me an excuse to connect with people who otherwise I might not be able to connect with. And in some ways that leads to business and other ways it leads to maybe resources or relationships can be powerful in all sorts of ways. So there can be all sorts of different values here, but I think taking those three as an example, is this about business? Is this about me learning? Or is this about me forming relationships? And again, knowing that you're gonna check multiple boxes most likely, but the clearer you are in your own mind of what order those goals come in is going to help you figure out what this show is and how do I approach it? Because for example, if it's about your own education and learning, it doesn't really matter how big an audience there is for it. If it's about relationships, all that matters is the people you want relationships with are willing to come on and talk to you and whatever. So maybe audience matters a little in order to get them, but maybe it doesn't. And if it's about clients, it doesn't really matter how big the audience is. If it's actually turning into business for you, it can be a very small, small but targeted audience. So getting clear on what you want out of it is the first step to sort of deciding, should I do this? The second thing I think you want to think about is with those goals in mind, whichever are sort of most important to you, how big is the potential audience for this show? An underlying part of, is it worth me starting this podcast? Should I do it? There's an unsaid thing that is, are there enough people that are going to listen to it? What if 20 people listen to it? But I think understanding how big is your potential audience and understanding that in comparison to your goal. So I'll give you a newsletter example. I I have a client who's in a very niche market. They've had a newsletter now for a couple of years. It's really successful for them. But when we started, I, one of the things I asked them was like, well, how big is the audience for this potentially? And they were like, this is really only relevant to maybe 5,000 people in the world. So if they have 2,500 subscribers, and I think they're at around 2,000 now, 
that's like half of the potential market. That's a massive success, even though lots of newsletters would go, oh, 2,000 subscribers, I have 100,000, but it doesn't matter. So keeping that context when you go into it and going, okay, the potential audience for this show might be 500 people. But if 50 of them are listening, this yeah. is very valuable, right? This is huge. This is very valuable for yeah. me, again, depending on what your, your goals are. So that's something to think about and consider. The other thing, and this gets into sort of what I was saying about learning or especially relationships as a goal, people default to the idea that the value of the podcast is in the audience. But actually, a podcast can be a Trojan horse and the values in the connections. The values in the podcast gives me an excuse to get these people to talk to me, to give me access to learn from them. To whatever. If I just called them up and said, hey, I do this and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Maybe they say yes, maybe they don't, but somehow the podcast, the interview format, the whatever, they're way more likely to. So if you decide that that's a big part of the reason for it, then don't beat yourself up if you have 50 listeners. Who cares? That's not the point. Another thing to consider, and again, I'm not going to, my goal here is not to say, yes, you should start a podcast or no, you shouldn't. There's a million variables, right? It's to help you figure out how do you think about making that decision and which way to go? So the other thing I would throw out there for you to consider is if you're going to start a podcast, it's you're essentially making a bet and investing X amount of time to record it, to do it, to whatever. And you're saying that this amount of time I'm making this up, I'm going to spend five hours a week on this podcast in various ways. What I want, the return on my investment of five hours is this. I hope it gets me these clients. I hope it gets me these relationships. I hope it whatever. I hope I learn these things. Taking that and then before you do it, thinking about, well, would I be better off investing that five hours in my own podcast or in trying to be a guest on other people's podcasts with your goal in mind? So let's just take a hypothetical and say the goal was to get clients. If you had spent five hours a week on your own podcast, is that going to do more to get you clients than spending five hours a week being a guest on other podcasts? Maybe, maybe not. There's pros and cons to each. But I think a lot of times people forget that depending on what your goals are and what you want to do, you don't necessarily have to have your own podcast and build it from scratch to leverage podcasts as a medium and podcast audience to get yourself out there. One quick example, there's a guy named Derek Sivers, who's a blogger and author and, and really great. He has a podcast that is literally just his appearances on other people's podcasts. So when he agrees to go on someone else's show, part of the deal is you also let me repurpose that show on my own feed. So instead of him sitting down and saying, I'm going to start a podcast of my own, and he has, an, he has a big audience and all of that, it's, it's a different dynamic, but he essentially realized, well, you know what? I have a podcast. It's just my appearances on these other shows. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it, but that's another question to, to think about. With all of that said, let's say that you've thought that through and you're like, okay, I am going to start a podcast. It makes sense. This is my goal and this is what I'm going to do it. So I'm going to give you four things to consider that I think anyone starting a podcast should think about. And again, there's no right or wrong answer, but I think these are key things to clarify for yourself before you get up and running. The first is there's a lot of different formats. A lot of people tend to default to the, I'm going to have guests on and I'm going to interview them and, you know, and that's fine. But I think the key question here with format is, 
do you want the podcast to be a showcase for yourself or others? And this depends a lot on your goals and what you're trying to do. But so, for example, the reason why my podcast format is people coming on asking me questions as opposed to the opposite is because one of my goals is that it leads to work and subscribers and clients and all that kind of stuff. So me just having on other experts and interviewing them doesn't really lead people to hire me. It would be better because I could book big guests with big following. So I would get to grow a bigger audience faster if that was my goal to have other people on that have big audiences. But that's not my goal. My goal is for it to lead to business to me. So I chose a format that showcases my expertise, not just other people's expertise. So thinking about the format and choosing a format that aligns with your goal, really important. The second thing to consider is how can the podcast you create provide actionable value to your target audience? And what I mean by that is what can they do after listening that they couldn't do before without necessarily hiring you, even if your goal is to have them hire you, even if you're interviewing other experts, what can they actually do? So it goes beyond just, this is an interesting conversation and this person shared X, Y, and Z advice, but even having a segment, even if you do a typical interview where you're like, oh, what's your advice about this, that, and the other, even having a segment or at the end going, look, here's the three action steps. You can't do all this stuff. I'm making this up. You talk with an expert about forest fires and he shared all this wisdom, but they can't implement all that right away. So maybe your last question or your first question is, give me three things they can do in the next month that's going to help them with forest fires. And that shifts. Most podcasts are just interesting. They're not actionable. Mm -hmm. As Absolutely. soon as it becomes actionable, becomes way more valuable. So I think you always want to figure out how can I make whatever we're going to talk about and whatever the format is actionable. The third thing I think you should consider is if you had to invite people to listen to your show one at a time, say there was no mass marketing, how hard would it be for you to find those people? So my guess is in your situation that you know relatively specifically who the audience is, right? It's people in these positions in government it's people in this, whatever, their job titles, even if you don't know them personally, you would be able to go, okay, I could go on LinkedIn and find the people at these companies and these government positions. And if I had to one-to-one -one go say, hey, I got this new show, I could find them. Number one, you could do that if it's relevant, like it's, it, it's, you can actually do that to grow the audience, but it's a good exercise even if you're not going to do it because it helps you clarify who you're actually talking to. If it's difficult for you to figure out who I would reach out to individually for this show, the show's probably too vague in terms of who it's targeted at. And then the last tip I have for you is, and this is for anyone who has a podcast, there is a book called Make Noise by Eric, I think you said news, I don't know if it's Nizum or Newsum. N-U-Z-U-M. We'll put a link in the show notes. He's a guy who worked for NPR for years and has produced like a million podcasts and that kind of stuff. It is a fantastic book about how to launch a podcast, how to figure out how to market it, everything about podcasting. I highly, highly recommend it. And he, towards the beginning of the book, he has four questions that he actually recommends that people consider. And there's a little overlap with what I just said, but I'll share them here anyway, because I think they're good. The first question is, which version of you are you on the show? And he points out that all of us have multiple versions of who we are, but that when you do, when you host a podcast, it's important to go, I'm this version of me. I have interest in sports and politics and whatever, but I'm the, the version of me on this show is the creative entrepreneur. That's what it is, right? And so getting specific of that. The second question is, who are you speaking to? Which is obvious, get very specific about your audience. 
The third question is, what do you have to say? So from a macro level, what is the point of this podcast? A lot of times people think about it on an individual episode level, but what is that through line message that connects all of these episodes? And then his fourth question is, what effect do you want to have on the listeners? Which I also think is really powerful. It gets into sort of what I'm talking about, about actionable advice, but also what do you want people to come away from the show feeling? Do you want them to feel inspired? Do you want them to feel angry? Do you want them to feel confident? What sort of emotionally do you want them to feel or what do you want them to do coming out of it? So maybe not exactly answering your question. I answered your question with a bunch of questions, but hopefully does all that make sense? Does that kind of give yeah, you a lot to think about? It does. And I'm excited to read Eric's book. And yeah. it really, it does help me think about it in a new way about mm -hmm. establishing what are the priorities and the reasoning behind it. It's yeah. not, and also, like you said, who are you bringing to the table? Not just in terms mm -hmm. of the app, but as yourself, how are you showing yeah. up and what does that look like? So yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thank you. Great. Let's get to your second question. What is the sure. next thing you want to know? Well, in emergency management, a DEI and trauma-informed approach should, I believe, change our approach to emergency preparedness in the 21st mm -hmm. century. But I feel a little bit like Henry Ford like the way he felt when he was trying to make the car go mass, right? Where he's mm -hmm. saying, if I, if I asked them what they needed, they would have said they would needed a faster horse. Right. So they're not talking about, oh, we need a vehicle. We just mm -hmm. need the horse to go faster. How do we introduce or how, how might I introduce the importance of DEI and trauma-informed approaches to emergency preparedness and a new way of looking at these things when it's not really talked about? What does that like? Yeah. It, it's it's essential, and yet we're sort of glossing over it. And I'm not sure how to go deeper in a way that is effective. Mm -hmm. So I love this question. I think it's super common because at its core, what you're asking is you're saying, look, I think I know what people need, but they don't realize they need it. On some level, you're saying, how do I convince people or make them realize that this is what they need when they don't they don't get it? I mean, a really good example of this is I've met with current clients who don't bring up equity, don't bring up DEI or trauma-informed mm -hmm. approaches when we talk about the initiation of the project. Mm -hmm. And then weeks into it are like, oh, by the way, we need to bring up, we need to talk about equity. We need to talk about, so it becomes an issue because right. they read about it in a newspaper, they've seen mm -hmm. it and they're like, oh, hold on, this could happen here. We need to start talking about how we yeah. look at DEI and trauma and, and how we communicate about that. So it is coming up. It's just not the mm -hmm. initial thing that they think about. Right. And so when they write the request for proposal, they're not asking oh, about sure. it. They're not asking for it. So there's a couple of things here. I'm going to start with one sort of concept and then I'm going to, then I'm going to shift a bit. But so the first is understandably you're seeing this as a challenge, but it's also possible that it's a strength or an opportunity. And so what I mean by that, and I've said this before, I, I firmly believe every strength is also a weakness and every weakness is also a strength. So in the context of this, the fact that they're not, it's not top of mind for them also creates an opportunity for you to draw a line in the sand. And again, I don't know how many people see it top of mind or not, but it gives you an opportunity to go, our ideal clients, we work with people that do see this top of mind aim for that, which will attract those people to you as opposed to trying to convince the people or be like, oh, but you guys are forgetting. You also need to think about this. So I'm going to give you an example. So for myself, like when I would talk about social media, one of the things that I would always say is that people overpay for social media management and underpay for social media strategy. 
that people all the time would be like, will you run my accounts? Or they'd hire agencies and agency proposals would be, we're going to post five times a day for you on your four different channels. And we're going to do blah, 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 blah. And it was all about management. And my take is that management's not hard. What's hard is figuring out what to post. The strategy is hard. If you get the strategy right, you could have some intern execute it. If, if you tell them what to post, the actual posting, the actual management is not hard. Now, not everyone's going to believe that because there's lots of people that are like, but I don't want to do the posting. I want someone to do all the posting for me. And that's fine. But that's not me. Right. Like I, that's not, I'm not in that game. So by me putting that out there, I wanted people that resonated with that idea that were like, you know what? I think he's right. Strategy is more important than the management. And I'm paying this agency a whole bunch for management, but they're not big on strategy. Right. So it's a way of differentiating myself. So I'm not suggesting that you need to do this, but it's an exercise for anyone that finds themselves in that approach is as opposed to trying to figure out how do I convince people or get people to realize this is important, depending on what the scope of the market looks like, maybe you go, you know what? The people that I need to convince aren't really my ideal audience. My ideal audience, I'm going to play up the fact that I think this is a core component and that's going to draw the perfect people to me more. Not saying you need to do that. And again, context is different everywhere, but that's, that's one way to go. The other thing I would say now setting that aside and going back to this, okay, how do I get people to acknowledge this? It's extremely difficult to try to convince people of something or change their minds, no matter what, even if you're right, even if you're whatever, it's better to lean into what they already believe and position your offer accordingly. And so what I mean by that is your pitch, your everything, you want to be focused on the results, not the tactic. So in this context, DEI, trauma-informed approach, those are all tactics. And so they're not thinking, to, and the nice thing you have is they're not against it. It's just not top of mind for them, right? Because you're saying it's coming up later. They're not disagreeing and saying, oh, that stuff's, we don't need that. Maybe they are in some cases, but in a lot of cases, it's coming up down the line. It's just not sort of at the, at the top of their list, right? So what you want to do is you're likely aligned on the result that they want. So what you want to do is you want to lean into that result and then secondarily go, these things are going to help you get that result as opposed to going, you need to think about these things. So there is a result. So like you tell me, DI and trauma-informed approach, what's the result of them approach, having that bet, taking that approach, paying attention to those things, what's the result that that drives for them? How does it help them? I mean, it really helps them in building a more cohesive approach to community preparedness, right? Because they're mm -hmm. not just communicating with one part or piece mm -hmm. of their audience. They're really thinking about the cohesive element of what it's like to live in that particular community, no right. matter what group you might mm -hmm. identify with. And then also, no matter what you've already previously experienced, right? Because we're mm -hmm. now coming to a point where all of us have previously experienced a disaster. Mm -hmm. And so yes. now we have to think about what trauma, what, what, what that, what preparedness looks mm -hmm. like when you have that experience informing your current choices and your current decisions. So okay. I think that's the result that you're looking at. And right. the approach or a part of that approach mm -hmm. is being aware of DEI and trauma. So, so let's go with that as an example. I would assume that almost all of your clients, when you say, what are the results you want? What are you trying to improve? What are you trying to figure out? That almost all of them would go, we want better community preparedness. Yeah, 
So this is very subtle, but the difference between going in and going, you need a DEI and trauma-informed approach and plan versus going in and going, you want community preparedness. Yes. Here are the keys to doing DEI, trauma, whatever. Even though in your mind it's a priority, it has to do with how you present the information. So you're selling, you're selling, you're pitching the results that you guys are aligned on and that they want. And then you're saying, if you want that, this is the best way to do it. The tactic is secondary always versus going in and saying, we help you do A, B, and C tactic. And what's interesting is if you think about like, even in my previous answer where we're talking about podcasts, what was the first thing I did? What's the result that we want? Figure out the result you want. And then here are tactics that you can use to get that result versus I didn't come in and say, right off the bat, like, oh, you should don't interview people on your show, do this, do that, whatever. So I think if you do that and you can still prioritize it, but now it's coming in and they're not going, well, I didn't reach out to you about DEI stuff. That's not what I'm looking for. I wanted community preparedness. It's very subtle, but the whole thing shifts when you're like, you want community preparedness. We're experts in community preparedness. Here are the keys to community preparedness. And DEI right? is and one of them. Exactly. So the other thing I would, I would say here, and by the way, when you do that, so you're pitching results and tactics secondary, you're more likely to be aligned. And then the key, what seals the deal is when you're able to prove that your tactic is a better way or an important or great way to get the result that they want. So when you're able to go, you want community preparedness, awesome. We're going to help you get community preparedness. Here's how you get it. And then you can throw out cities that have DI trauma approach programs, X, Y, and Z, whatever you can do to, to prove it. What they're hearing is, or what they want to hear, and this is especially true in consulting and all that kind of stuff. They want to hear, she gets what I want. So they want to hear mimicked back to them their words, and then they'll buy into the rest of it versus Absolutely. you need a trauma-informed approach plan. They're like, no, I don't. I need community preparedness. And now, even though you know that that's what it's going to get them, you're sort of misaligned. The other thing, it's weird. This is turning into a book recommendation episode, but I have another great book recommendation. There is a book and it originally came out, I think like in the eighties, maybe even before that, but it is, it's a book called Positioning by Al Reese, R-I-E-S and Jack Trump. Fantastic book. And even though it's older, it's still completely relevant and it's all about some of what we're talking about here and how you position yourself. But one of the core points of the book, which, which aligns, what made me think about it was the, this conversation that we're having. And one of the things that it talks about is people think that they create their own positioning in a market and then convince people. But in actuality, your positioning already exists in the person's mind. And it's your job to stake it out. A different version of stop trying to convince them of a thing, start with where they're at and then and then feed into it. So I actually wrote down this little excerpt from towards the beginning of the book where they talk about it. So this is the excerpt. It says, to be successful today, you must touch base with reality. And the reality that really counts is what's already in the prospect's mind. To be creative, to create something that doesn't already exist in their mind is becoming more and more difficult, if not impossible. The basic approach of positioning is not to create something new and different, but to manipulate what's already up there in their mind, to retie the connections that already exist. Positioning theory says you must start with what the prospect is already willing to give you. Mm -hmm. So they want community preparedness. They're willing to believe you're an expert in community preparedness, and then they're more likely to trust 
the tactics that you suggest to use versus you're just pitching the tactic and they're like, I don't believe in that. Not that I don't believe in it, but that's not what's top of mind. So does that all make sense? Can you see how that might? I can. And I love the approach of tactically, of of strategically aligning it and then tactically building the ladder, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think it actually aligns really well to the conversation we were having about the first question in terms of niching into a podcast and Mm -hmm. how that fits with strategy and what types of interrelationships and, and tactics there are. And it also aligns with my third question. There we go. Nice. Beautiful segue. I know. Wow. I really, I really nailed this one. So what is, what is that third question? You're a real, you're a professional guest. Yeah. <laughs> so my third question is around outputs, outcomes, and values. And when my team and I work on a proposal and we really struggle with that outputs, outcomes, values type of thing, because we're responding to RFPs and they already mm-hmm. have a view in mind. So how do we yeah. align them with, how do we nail that approach by essentially saying, look, not only are we experienced and capable, but these are the values, the outcomes, the outputs that we can drive for you. And where, where does that fit in our mm-hmm. proposal process? Tell me, why do you think that you struggle with them? I think I struggle with them. I think mostly because it's difficult for me to tell them apart sometimes as I'm reading. And it's also difficult for me to like really hone in on concisely describing what mm. is the value what are we delivering and and mm-hmm. what's the, what's the strategic outcome what's the tactical output what's the how does that all fit in so it it's in my head it's very jumbled and i I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like oh we need all i think we need all three of these things to make a really successful mm-hmm. proposal a successful response not just a proposal but also to mm-hmm. the project itself but I find myself stumbling along in this area. How much of it is it, do you think, that it's trying to fit what you have in your head into their buckets that they've given you in the RFP versus is it also a problem if, you're, if there wasn't an RFP? I mean, maybe there's an RFP, but it wasn't specific. They were just like, send us a proposal. Do you find that you run into the same problem with the proposal you're creating versus filling in their blanks? So I think when I fill in their blanks, it's definitely more difficult because yeah. I'm not the one who's writing it. I'm not the author right. of the initial request. When mm-hmm. I write my own proposal to like a blanket, hey, we've had a conversation. I'd love to work mm-hmm. with you. Tell me what you can do for me. I think what I trip up on is I can explain the value, but it doesn't sound as concrete as mm-hmm. I know it can be. And then I I also have a tendency to be like, oh, and outputs are outcomes or outcomes are outputs. And I'm like, whoa, right. I totally lost <laughs> right. them, which and why they're that right. way. So yeah, I'm just okay. curious. So let's start here. I always like to, it's funny, my wife works in advertising sales. So she deals with RFPs all the time. And it is amazing how it's, yeah, it can get real convoluted based on whatever language they want to use and et cetera. So let's start here. If you zoom way out, do you feel like you're clear on the transformation that you help people or clients make? And how would you describe, and maybe it's different things for different types of clients, but let's take one as an example, maybe even pick like an RFP you've done recently or something specific where it's like, what is the point A that they're at? So here's how I think about, I think that all sort of work and value is created through transformation. Someone or some organization is at point A, they want to get to point B. And your work, they hire you, your content, your whatever you do is the bridge. So let's define what, for a potential client for you, like what is the point A that they're at and what is the point B that they want to get to? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Transformation is ideal. Thing that I've noticed in RFPs, especially when it's government-based RFPs, 
-hmm. that transformation gets stripped out of all of that process because they're simply saying, we need X to fulfill Y. We need a plan to respond to a to our known threats and hazards, right? We need we need an earthquake response plan. And so okay. there's no transformation in that. They they've stripped transformation out of that process. Well, I'm curious, why do you why do you think there's no transformation there because that actually seems like a very well, clear transformation to me. So so for example, point let's use the earthquake response plan, right? Yeah. Point A is the exaggerated version is we have no idea what we're going to do if we have an earthquake. The lighter version is we have a plan, but we're not so sure that it's as good as it should be. At a minimum, we're worried about how we're going to respond to an earthquake. Point B is we have a plan and we're confident we'll be able to respond well to an earthquake. That's a clear transformation, even if they don't use those words. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. From, so let's talk about using some of your words. So from an outcome standpoint, the outcome is you didn't have a plan and now you have a plan. Relatively obvious. Simplified, right. but you know, oversimplified. The output is whatever you're going to give them that helps them get from we don't have a plan to we have a plan in theory. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The value is not having a plan is going to be a disaster for X, Y, and Z. And it's going to cause all, cost us all sorts of money and all kinds of problems and whatever. And having a plan is going to save us all sorts of money and save lives and do all those things and help us get reelected. So to me, when you said it, it seemed like, okay, well, like that's a sort of clear point A and point B, but clearly, and maybe it's just because you're in the weeds, you didn't necessarily see it that way. So talk to me about that. I think some of it is because we are in the weeds. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the other part of it is that seems really simplistic. Is it that easy? Mm -hmm. Am I I literally like staring at the RFP going, okay, where is what they're really, you know, like how do Mm -hmm. we give them the quote unquote value that they're, that they're looking for, as opposed to look, the value is you have a plan and that plan's going to make you more prepared and give you peace of mind. End of conversation. Ta-da. Right. Is it more than that? Is it deeper than that? And then so, also, how do you explain it in a, Yeah. how do you write it out? A couple of different things here. So one is simpler is always better. Part of the problem is government, not the most simple in the world. So they're way, for all sorts of reasons, they're way overcomplicating the RFP and the whatever. And that's making you feel like we need to be more complicated. Yes. Yeah. But the truth is people like, simple. So you can fill it with jargon and gobbledygook and all that stuff and just confuse them. Or you can very simply, like what I said, was completely oversimplified to you, but I think you were like, yeah, that is what we do. Like it, like your reaction was like, oh, that's actually really simple. But simple does not mean that it's not valuable. This is where it gets key, right? So the reason I started purposefully with this simplified point A, point B is for you to go, okay, this is really simple. Now you just have to define what those things are, and you have to add the specifics. So simple is before you had no plan, now you have a plan, okay? And you go, okay, that's valuable. It's valuable to have a plan as opposed to not having a plan. But now you get specific about what makes that plan valuable. And that's where like I drift very quickly and was like, it's going to save lives. It's going to save money. It's going to do this. It's going to get you reelected. It's going to blah, 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 like whatever. But each of those things, you can get real specific. The average, and I don't know any of this stuff, but you would, you would know it, right? Like when you have this type of a plan, it saves this much money. It saves this many lives. The response time for a fire department after an earthquake goes from 20 minutes to two minutes. Like I'm making stuff up. But now you start layering those specifics in. Again, keeping it simple, not jargony. 
but going very specifically, like this is what having a plan gets you. And that now all of a sudden it seems real valuable. Is that possible or no? I know. I think it is. And I think you just took the RFP process from 30 pages to three pages, right? right. It's literally, here's what we can do in one page. Here's testimonials or references from people mm-hmm. who've already done it for. And, and here's about the firm. I'm like, yeah. those are your three. So it's so interesting. I'm working on a current project that's literally the technical approach should be somewhere mm-hmm. between seven and 10 pages. Yeah. I'm like, it, it doesn't actually have to be seven pages. Like I could, you don't need right. that long of a technical approach. So right. I think I'm also getting a little bit like, yes, the, the simple, simple is better. The right. approach is solid. And then you map it into, and your RFP must fit. Right. But you can also expand, right? So let's so let's say I had that, right? And I say, look, it really only takes me a page to say this is what's going to be in the plan and this is what we're going to do. But you're telling me you want seven pages. Okay. I'll dive deeper on each of those items if I had to. So the part I'm using the fire department as an example, right? There's a version that goes, hey, if you have a plan, the fire department response time is going to go from 20 minutes to two minutes. But if I need to expand this to fit the RFP, I could give you two pages about exactly how fire department times go from 20 minutes to two minutes and why that is. So it should be this sort of flexible thing, right? Where you have a one page, ver- which by the way, may come in handy for non-RFPs, right? Yeah. You have a one page version, but then you take each one of these elements and go, okay, this one that's only a sentence, I can make four paragraphs. Not with fluff, but by adding, by layering in more specifics to what that actually means. So one of your things might be your police and fire departments will be better synced and have better communication. You can express that value in a sentence, or I could write five pages about how police and fire departments get better synced and what happens when they're not synced and all of that stuff. The key is you're expanding not with fluff, but by zooming in and giving more and more specifics about whichever items it is that you want to share. The other thing I would say, and again, this is more general, it applies to the RFP, but also more sort of general. When you're selling, the sell is again the results. Don't just get bogged down in the tactics. So you're not selling, we have X, Y, and Z approach. You're on a broad level. You're selling, your pain point is you don't have a plan. Now you're gonna have a plan. And so let me give you a quick example. It's totally different from what you do, but I think it might be relevant. I do consulting calls called Clarity Calls. And plug, if anyone's interested, go to joshspector.com slash consulting. So my Clarity Calls are 90-minute calls. I don't sell them as a 90-minute call. I sell them as a Clarity Call that's going to help you get clear on your messaging, your marketing, your content, your whatever, right? I'm selling the results of a clarity call, not the tactic of a clarity call. And it's really important because people will come back to me and they will ask, oh, can I book a 60-minute call instead of a 90-minute call? And my answer is always no, because I'm not selling my time. I'm not selling 90 minutes. I'm selling the result of the 90 minutes. And the result requires a 90-minute call. People are so used to buying the tactic. Oh, I'm buying your time. I'm buying, and I'm sure you see this all the time. Like, I don't know how you package your services, but they're like, it how many months is it? Right. How, right. And how right. much? Yeah. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. No, what I'm selling you is the transformation from you don't have a plan to you have a plan or the whatever the sort of package is. 
The other thing I would say along these lines, which I think can also be helpful, is thinking about the emotional reasons that people hire you. So if we go back to our point A, point B example, right? The person that's doing the hiring doesn't have a plan. They want to get to a plan. And you start thinking, well, emotionally, why is they're worried, they're confused, they're insecure, they're all of those things. They don't trust the people around them. Maybe they don't think those people are good. They, whatever it is, they want to get, they don't want to have something bad happen and then look bad. They want to get, there's selfish reasons, there's selfless reasons, there's all sorts of reasons. But literally sitting down and writing a bunch of their emotional states and then doing a transformation on that. Not only are you taking them from no plan to plan, you're also taking them from insecure to confident. Mm -hmm. You're taking them from worried they're going to lose their job to excited they're going to get promoted or proud to get praise from their boss. It's a really helpful exercise because then you can look at and position all the things you're doing with a subtle nod to those emotional states so that when you're presenting it, you're not just saying, hey, you're going to have a plan. You're, you're going to have a plan you can be confident in. You don't have to worry. You're going to be used, you're going to know that you're now following the latest best practices not what used to be the best practices five years ago. And I think that's the key to the value, right? Where you're yeah. saying, look, you went from being confused to having clarity and therefore, and that, that's what we're selling, clarity, yep. as, opposed to, as opposed to 90 minutes of my time. Exactly. And that emotional stuff's really powerful and it's, it's why a lot of people buy. One last thing, and I'll just throw in, and this is relevant, but I took a quick look at your website which is to linchpinroad.com. And it'd be, it'll be interesting for you as you think about everything that we've talked about. And I encourage anyone who's listening and going through these things for yourself, as you think through all this stuff, then go back and look at your own messaging and website and go, is this reflecting yeah. that? So this was prior to our conversation. I looked at the site and jotted down just some initial just notes without really knowing much about you at all. Just give you some stuff to think about. So the headline on your homepage right now is, it says, at Two Linchpin Road, we help you prepare, respond, and recover from disaster. Be ready for anything. So the first question I had is, who is you? We help you, but is that we help governments? We help emergency departments? We help, is there an opportunity to get more specific? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it doesn't matter because anyone that's seeing that already knows, but something to think about. And then the other thing is you have this headline, be ready for anything. Pretty broad. Also an opportunity there to play into this transformation, right? What you're saying, I know what you mean by be ready for anything, but you're really going from become confident that you can handle it. Is that, you know, are you sure you're prepared for a disaster? Here's your chance to be confident. Not a great line, but you can see how I'm playing up that transformation. It's there, but something to, is there a stronger line yeah, that sort of indicates? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, then I went and looked at your service page and there's a headline on there where you list your services and it says, customized disaster response and emergency management. And then it says what we do best. The current emergency management and disaster response approach is broken. Are you ready to build a strong organization and community to protect what matters to you, what matters most to you? So my first thought, and I don't know that this is true. Again, this is just a brainstorm, but are you insulting your target audience? So are there people who are running to say your current emergency management disaster response approach is broken, yeah. which is probably true, by the way. But you're talking to the people who are running that emergency response. Yeah. So do they look at them would say, oh, it's broken. It might actually be a good thing. And do you get more specific broken? How broken? Why? Bro whatever. 
The other thing is, are you ready to build a strong organization, a community to protect what matters most to you? Is there a different way we can help you? Everyone's going to say, yes, I'm ready to do that. Is there a more powerful thing there? And then the other thing in general is, even though it's your services page, you really should be talking to an audience. So the headline is what we do best, which is about you. It should be more along the lines of how we can help you. It's almost like that last line, ready to build a strong organization and protect what matters you most, is almost better off as the headline. Oh, and yeah. then less about you, more about who you're minor, but you know, things to to talk about. And then the last thing I wanted to share with you, you have good testimonials on your page. But one of the things that's interesting is you want to, even your testimonials to the extent that you can, you want to focus on results versus Alicia's great. So there were, when I was looking at the testimonials, I highlighted a few lines that are results. And you also may want to use some of this, not as testimonials, but to inform your copy, right? To inform your, these are the results. These are people telling us what the results are. So one of the testimonials, someone said as part of it, help to increase our engagement with community stakeholders and improve our presentation materials. Those are concrete, specific results. What did I get from hiring? What do I get if I'm going to hire them? I'm going to get increased engagement with community stakeholders and they're going to improve my presentation materials. Another one, we've sought to understand the nuance of emergency of the emergency management space and the feasibility of how new business capabilities integrate into that space over time. These are concrete, specific results. And I'm not even saying just the testimonial, but looking at your presentations and going, are we saying these specific things are going to happen? Because these are what our happy customers said they got. Another one, helping us understand where we need to strategically be in the future. These are lines that you could, what are we going to do for you? We're going to help you, you know, figure out where you need to be strategically in the future. And then the last one I pulled was Alicia's efforts will result in Crew's ability to provide education, outreach, and the sharing of best practices nationally. Are those results reflected? And then a lot of the testimonials are she was great to work with. She was so dependable. That's way less important than like the specific results of this is what we got. And that's what you want to play up. Those lines I pulled from the testimonials told me more about what you actually do for people than a lot of the other stuff, just because they were more specific. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. So cool. Uh, Any else questions about any of this before we all go off and prepare ourselves for disaster? No, (laughs) I'm going to be updating them my website. So maybe by the time it airs. There there you go. Cool. Um, I'm glad. No, thank you for your help. I really appreciate it. I think we really drilled down very deeply on some of my um, my questions and yeah. help me get some clarity. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the questions. I sincerely hope people don't get scared off by the disaster intro and listen, because I know the stuff that like we talked about here is relevant to so much of my audience because I just know they I hear the same stuff all the time, which is why I wanted to have you on. Speaking of which, if someone else out there watching or listening to this would like to come on, go to joshspector.com slash questions. You can submit three questions for me like Alicia did, and then you can wind up on here. It's a sneaky way to get free consulting in case any of you haven't put that together yet. Alicia, tell people where they can go to find you for all their disaster needs. Yeah, you can reach me online at www.twolinchpinroad.com. Cool. And I'm my newsletter for theinterested.com slash subscribe. If you are interested in a clarity call that I mentioned, joshspector.com slash consulting. I'm on Twitter all the time at jspector, at least while Twitter still exists. And that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great week. I will see you next week.